Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Priest Forever, the podcast for the Vocations Office of the Diocese of Bridgeport. I'm Father Chris Ford, the Vocations Director for the Diocese, and it's a joy to have you all back uh, to hear from another one of our great priests, another one of our our brothers who is uh, laying down his life to serve the Lord, to serve the people in our diocese. And so we are so happy to welcome with us today, Father Reggie Norman. Uh, Father Reggie is the pastor at Our Lady of Fatima Parish in Wilton. Uh, he also serves our diocese uh, as the dean of one of our deaneries and the Episcopal Vicar for Black Catholics and is the president of the National Association of Black Catholic Administrators. So he wears many hats, as do uh, so many of the priests in our diocese, but it is really a joy to have Father Reggie Norman here with us. Welcome, Father. Thank you. Thank you. So as we always do, we always like to just, you know, kind of begin at the beginning. Um, this is a podcast where it gives us a chance not only to hear about priesthood, but about our priests. So to get to know who you are a little bit, to get to know a little bit of your story um, and how God has led you to where we are today. So who is Father Reggie Norman? Uh, Father Reggie Norman is a child of God, born in North Carolina, way back when, moved to Connecticut, Fairfield County when I was six months okay. old, and I've lived here my entire life. I'm what you would call a late vocation. Mm -hmm. I've worked in with Wall Street brokers. I was an editor. I sold computers, managed a group that sold to the government. I even worked in a high-end home improvement center as a manager designing kitchens. So I guess you call it a jack of all sure. trades. Yeah, that's that that uh, that sounds like uh, a lot going on, <laughs> you know, um, in in your life. So, what was where in where in Connecticut when you moved up from North Carolina? Where in Connecticut did you move to? We moved to Norwalk, and I was a product of the Norwalk school systems until I went to junior high, where we moved to Stratford, and then I went the rest of my schooling system in Stratford, and then I went to the University of Connecticut and graduated from there, did some work at Sacred Heart, so I've been all over the place, but mostly right here in Fairfield sure. County. Okay, and uh, tell me a little bit about your, your family background, a little bit about, you know, siblings and parents, where, where, where's the family uh, connections here? Well, I'm my mother's only child. I'm her only child, which you get the good and the bad and everything in between. My father has three other children, and of those four, I am number three. So I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And we didn't really know each other growing up because I was here in Connecticut. They were in North Carolina. Sure. So my family roots are in North Carolina, mm -hmm. um, farmers, agricultural farmers, a um, little bit of indigenous people, Native Americans in our in our family, and just hardworking people. And, you know, it's just a different world down there than it is here. So by the blessings of God, I was transferred or moved to Connecticut, and my life changed a little bit different. Come from a large family. My mother has many siblings. I think the last time we counted, there are 57 first cousins, and all but three of us have children. And it just goes on and gets bigger and bigger. So we have reunions every other year. We go from North Carolina to Washington, D.C. to Connecticut. And 200 people is a small reunion for us. So it's we believe in family values, a very strong Southern Baptist practice. So a lot of the Southern traditions 
run true in our family, like on any given Sunday, someone in our family has dinner. And if you're plugged in right, you're always welcome to dinner. But yeah. we grew up also a lot of respect. You you have aunts and uncles and aren't your aunts and uncles, but everyone has a title in front of their name. You never call an adult by their first name. Right. And I think that that village mentality was with me throughout all of this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it takes a village to, to raise a child. We've, we've heard that phrase you know, so, so many times in, in all of our lives. Um, so you mentioned, and, and I think this is, this is really interesting. So you mentioned, okay, your, your family's coming from, from Carolina and from a rich Southern Baptist tradition. Was, were you raised Catholic? Were you raised Southern Baptist? What was your faith journey uh, throughout your life? Southern Baptist, okay. Southern Baptist. On my paternal side, my paternal grandfather, four uncles and a ton of cousins are all Southern Baptist ministers. Even to this yeah. day, there are many Southern Baptist ministers. And growing up in, in Norwalk, I went to the Baptist mm -hmm. church. It's just a different experience than most would adhere to. Yeah. And you go to church on Sunday and you get churched out. You go to Sunday school, then to church. And if your mother's involved, so you're literally there from nine to three. Sure. And I think like all churches, the Southern Baptist church has evolved from what it was. When I was mm -hmm. growing up, we were told how bad we were, we were evil and we better avoid hell. And, you know, my cousins and I, we went together, we were little minions and it's like, well, if we're so bad and we know we're bad, why are we still going if we're not going to get any better? So we rebelled with any opportunity. And then the big change came for us when my family moved to Stratford and we were out of Norwalk. It was even more difficult because that church was established and it was some of the things that we like to avoid in the Catholic church, like wear the right thing, drive the right car, very clickish and we just didn't fit in. So in the home, we were very religious. We prayed and we did all those things, but church attendance wasn't important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then what happens is, you know, you grow up with all of the rhetoric and what the Southern Baptist church teaches. And back in the days when I grew up, the Catholic church was a big, no, no, you don't go in it. It's so different than us. And they're not us. They don't like you. And so I grew up with all of these stigmas. And mm -hmm. when I finally got to college and even in high school, I started to ask questions and notice some of the differences there. And my roommate in college, who is one of my best friends to this day, devout Italian Catholic, you go to church every week, whether you're at home or whatever. So what happens at the University of Connecticut, they had a 10 p.m. mass on Sunday night. Can you imagine <laughs> university campus? And it was like, hey, just go with me. We'll go out for beers later. I'm like, I don't want to go to the Catholic church. I can't go to Catholic church, blah, 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 yeah. blah. I'll buy the beers. Okay, I'll go sit in the back. You know, one of those type yeah. of things. And then I started going. And I was like, wow. This isn't what I was told or what I was led to believe. And then, you know, I always say God has a sense of humor and he puts things in front of you. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was a certified EMT and I was working the ambulance in my hometown of Stratford. Mm -hmm. And one of the partners that I worked with was just Dan to me. And, you know, you work with people, you don't get to know their personal lives. But unbeknownst to me, he was actually a Roman Catholic priest. It was Dan Canelli. He was at St. James oh, at the time. And I found out he was a priest. I'm like, Dan's a priest? I had a different image of priest and everything else. And Dan was the coolest guy. And so I'd work a six-hour shift, and I think I'd wear him out asking him questions about the Catholic Church. And he finally said, oh, just go to church already. <laughs> you know, and it, the funny thing is I actually went, coupled with going with my roommate from college, and all of a sudden – the seed was planted, although the seed was always there, but I started asking questions and questions and questions that I was never allowed to ask. And then I was just perplexed. 
by this whole thing of the Eucharist, because remember, we had Eucharist once a month, a little self-serve cop with some grape juice in it, and you couldn't even get it as a kid. Then I started learning about baptism, like in the Baptist church, you decide when you get baptized, it can be an adult. So all of these questions start coming up, and the more and more I would ask questions, I was surprised that they had the answers. So then I'm really falling in love with it. So by the time I graduated from college, I was all in. And when I got home, I started going to the local church, St. James. And my mother was like shocked. It's like the little one who doesn't want to go to church is all of a sudden going to a Catholic church. I have to see what's going on here myself. And, you know, she still got the stereotypes of growing up with it as well. Mm -hmm. So she started going with me and it became a tradition. We'd go together Mm. And we had a good pastor who brought us in. So my mother and I came in together uh, way wow. back when. And then, you know, there's a piece of our church that we're missing in RCIA. Mm-hmm. We go through the training and they bring you in on the Easter vigil. But the most important part is the mystagogia, that fourth stage. And I had a sure. very good pastor. who could do things a little different back then. He goes, I'm mm-hmm. an altar server this morning. You're an altar server. You're the lector today. You're the Eucharistic minister. I need you on this council. I need you this. Yeah. And he started really pushing me and giving me a great exposure to everything. And he was always saying, you should become a priest. You should become a priest. I was single at the time. And I'm like, I don't think the church is ready for me. I'm the biggest sinner you know. He goes, look at me. I'm not that great either. They've still recovered from me. And so, you know, what happens is the more you're entrenched, the more the burning desire comes up. And then all of a sudden, one day you just realize... And in my life, I had a great professional career, Mm -hmm. but I still wasn't satisfied. I was always seeking something. And my life history, I love to serve other people. And one day I went on a retreat and I realized that in serving people is where I got my greatest joy and the satisfaction and the rest of the things in life weren't as important. So I decided that I should play Let's Make a Deal with God, which, you know, God again laughs and has a game. So I said, well, I've got a great life. I've got this beautiful condo, this great job. I'm making a ton of money. Life is good in corporate America. So I don't want to give up my life because I like my life and I think it's too rigid. I'll become a deacon, a permanent Hmm. deacon. Okay. So I started out with my classmates and I became a permanent deacon. And I loved it. And it was great. But, you know, God's not done with you. When he calls, he will keep calling whether you answer or not. So we got ordained in 2006 in June. And that July, we all went to Rome in Assisi. And it was a trip of a lifetime. And to tell you, Divine Providence, one of the people who was there at the time was Monsignor Tom Powers. And Monsignor Tom Powers celebrated Mass for us deacons at the St. Sebastian Chapel at at the Vatican St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. Stick your hand through here at St. Peter's. And we're walking to go to lunch. And I started asking him a lot of questions because Bishop Laurie had told me, keep discerning. I'm still not done with you. So I'm talking and funny thing was happening to me in Rome. Everywhere I went, and mind you, we had the St. Stephen's Cross on no collar. Mm -hmm. Everybody would go by me. Hi, Father. How are you? Hi, Father. Like, I'm a deacon. I'm not a father. (laughs) And it just kept happening yeah. and happening. And it wasn't happening to the other deacons. It was just yeah. me. And so I was walking and talking with Monsignor Powers. It wasn't my senior at the time. And I said, what's going on here? And he just simply said the simplest things to me. Maybe others seeing you, what you don't see in yourself and what God's calling you to. So that threw me for a loop. And I'm like, okay. So I come home. And Bishop Laurie at the time had plans for me, unbeknownst to me. He wanted, they were having difficulties at Blessed Sacrament. I was already the vicar for African-American Catholics. He goes, I need help at Blessed Sacrament. The pastor's sick. The people love you. Can you go there and be the administrator? Which was rare because rarely is a deacon at that time administrator. Sure. So in 
August of 2006, just being ordained in June, I actually left my job and went to Blessed Sacrament as an administrator. And boy, oh boy, do you get to learn prayer and get to understand the power of God because I went in with all my business experience of like, I'm going to fix this place. I'm going to turn it around, all ego and everything. And you get there and you realize there's not even an office for you. They don't have computer first. There's a lot of problems, the community, robberies, everything in the area. You get humbled really quickly and find your ways to your knees. And it was only when I found my way to my knees and just said, God, guide me. Yeah. that all of a sudden things started clicking and turning around quickly. So to show you how quickly things work, by October, I had gone to Bishop Laurie and said, hey, Bishop Laurie, trick or treat. And he goes, I'm having a bad day, no jokes today. <laughs> so well, I think I want to become go back and become a priest. Mm-hmm. He was ecstatic and Bishop Laurie, you know, I had master's degrees, I had other stuff. He wanted to get this quickly. So I went down to St. John Fisher for that spring semester mm-hmm. And that fall, I went to Holy Apostles and started my seminary mm-hmm. training. So imagine ordaining a deacon in 2006, and I was ordained a priest in 2009. And ever since then, so Bishop Laurie sent me back to Blessed Sacrament, which was a joy to be at. I love the people. I'm still associated with them through Black Catholics. And I was there until 2013. And then at the time, we didn't have a bishop. So in between bishops, they had a need at Fatima. And I guess I was doing a good job, so they decided I was going. And back then, you didn't question that you were told. So I left there and went to Our Lady of Fatima, and I've been here ever since. But I still have great ties to Blessed Sacrament through my work with the Black Apostolate. Yeah. Wow. That is that is such an, an amazing and incredible story. And, and so rich, right, in this idea of what we think – God will be okay with. <laughs> it's not always what God will actually be like this. Okay. Meeting halfway doesn't work for God. God wants no. all of what he wants from us. And I'll tell you an even funnier thing is um, as I was playing, let's make a deal with, with God thinking I'll do this and you'll be happy. Yeah. All of the things that I thought I loved in my personal life somehow got turned upside down. Like I had a beautiful condo, yeah. 2000 square feet, two bedroom overlooking a river. The condo associations cut down all the trees. People were moving in. My neighbor got his girlfriend pregnant. He was an older guy, and he subleased it to his 18-year-old son, who were moshing and banging on the walls. I'm like, what I first loved became something I hated. And then even the job that I was working at the time, there was a lot of nasty political corruption going on. And I was above that, I thought, but it really took its toll on me because... I would literally go to work and get sick in the parking lot before I'd go in because I knew how corrupt it was. And um, at the time, I had a spiritual director, and he said, get away from them. Those people are evil. So I was making a deal to preserve everything that I thought I loved, and it got turned upside down, and it ended up that God was the only constant thing in my life. So interesting lesson that I'll never forget. Yeah, Yeah, and something that we all need to learn. you know, And whether in one way or another, I think that's a lesson that that comes to all of us, whether we're looking for it or not. That the things of the world that we think are going to make us happy are ultimately fleeting um, and right. often not what they appear to be. And whereas it's so easy to kind of dismiss God from the very beginning, especially if we have what we think we want and, and what the world tells us we need. It's easy to kind of dismiss God as as not what we're looking for. But in the end, that's all that there is. That's all that really is going to make us and it satisfied. Goes, it goes back to the it goes back to the basin. Thy will be done, not yeah. my will. Because a lot of times my will is all about me and not the common good. And we're created to be in community, to love and serve one another. When I'm doing my will, that's not at the forefront of what I do. 
And I get into trouble even today. If I think about what I want, I'll get into trouble every single yeah. time. And that's a lesson that I learned the hard way, but it's a lesson that I have to learn over and over again. It's never perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a yes every minute of every day, uh, yeah. you know, that that's required of us. So, you know, one thing I, I would really love to, to hear your, your thoughts on and, and, and get your perspective on um, is something that I, I feel like we don't really have a good understanding or appreciation of at times, right? Which is the role and in, in, so to speak of diversity in our diocese and in our church, right? So you, you have, have uh, served as the vicar for black Catholics. That's been a, a huge part of your ministry, you know, even since you were, were a deacon, what has that experience uh, been like for you? And in terms of especially knowing, I mean, the reality of, of our church, especially in the Northeast is that um, I think black Catholics are, are underrepresented even just to the general uh, population and things like that. So what has that experience been like for you? What can you share with us about that? Um, it's, it's one thing to be a priest and that's great. But when you're a black priest, there's another layer that comes with it because you automatically have to serve and represent the people right. that are like you. And we're such a small percentage but yet we play such an important part and all too often we're forgotten or ignored. And the hardest part of it is to, you're constantly like being a cheerleader yeah. to keep them engaged because our numbers are dwindling quickly, not because of lack of faith, but sometimes because of the racist bias feelings that people mm -hmm. go through. Like I remember when I first got the blessed sacrament, there was a parishioner who told me years ago as a girl, she couldn't go to the cathedral. Mm -hmm because black people weren't allowed. And she grew up Catholic her whole yeah. life, Cape Verdean, and they were forced to the basement. Yeah. Now you have to understand that resonates with her and she lives with it her entire life. And also when you think about all the 60s and everything that we went through, separate but equal really wasn't equal. Right. So when we start, we're always at a disadvantage. And then you have to always keep your eye on what's going around and one of the great things about the black community is if there's trust, they will talk and tell you what they're feeling. And it's a great opportunity to minister to. Sure. But the sad reality is if you don't understand them, they'll sit at the table and just say yes and be polite. Mm -hmm. And you won't have any idea what they're really feeling. A lot of people blunder and make that mistake and they write them off. Mm -hmm. And the other obligation that I have, and it's a tough one, is because we lack vocations because black young men don't see anyone like yeah. them. So how can I go to do something when there's no one like me? And so that's a tough part of it as well. And the other thing that I think is dynamic about it, and I think it's one of the greatest gifts of the black community is um, with Vatican II, when you talk about celebrating with cultural differences, it's allowed us to feel special mm -hmm. in our celebration, yeah. like gospel music. If people don't understand gospel music, they just won't right. get it. But all the way back to slavery times, that's what soothed them and kept them alive fighting the good battle. Yeah. And when you think of some of the gospel songs and you listen to the words, it's that soothing tone mm -hmm. that keeps them at base. There's a greater place up there. We may not get it here, but we know we're going to a greater place. So that's an important role. And one of the things that I do love about the black community that I wish the rest of our church would love is the sense of community. Yeah. They stick together, or I should say we stick together no matter what. Even simple things like a funeral 
it's a totally different feeling. It's not a family morning. It's a community mm-hmm. morning. And the whole community contributes and supports and guides that family from beginning to end. And it's something that's extraordinarily beautiful yeah. when it's done properly. But um, even today, there's still obstacles mm-hmm. that we go through. And the worst part about it, and it's where it gets difficult, is um, if you're not at the table, you don't know what's going on, and therefore you don't get a voice to express what's happening to you. So in a lot of situations, I have to be at the table for everything. So it can wear you down because at some point you got both sides pulling you and you don't know which side to turn to. So it, there's a lot of hours, a lot of manpower. But the wonderful thing about it is the people are highly uplifting and supportive. I mean, my old parish, they still call and check yeah. on me. And I haven't been there for over 10 years. And when I go back, the kids come up and hug you and they want to tell you what's going on in their lives. So there's a, it's, a, it's a great connection. It's a lifelong kind of like connection, not just a temporary connection. And that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and I hear in that, right, a lot of the, the beautiful parts that you shared at the beginning, right, about your family. Right. And that it's it really is meant to be this extended community, this extended family. And as rich and as beautiful as that is right in in the black community in particular, that's what we're all called to have with one another. Right. Regardless of of background and everything like that. And so I think there's there's a really beautiful lesson, you know, for all of us to learn um, from the black community of like, as you said, like, no, it's not the family is not just what we typically consider a family unit, right? We, right. you know, to be beloved children of God, right? As you, as right off the bat, you said, right? I'm, I'm a beloved son of God. That also means that there's a reality of brother and sisterhood, right? And that, yeah. that we have to support yeah. each other in that way. And the wonderful thing about it too, is like, I'll, I'll never forget when I was at Blessed Sacrament, you have to understand church, office, rectory, parishioners live right there. It's an old neighborhood church. And people used to accuse me of being long-winded that our service went for three or four hours. No, our service was about an hour. It's just that after mass, they visited each other. They had food together. So the parking lot was full and the street was full. Matter of fact, I'd walk up and down the street with the parishioners. And the one good thing about it is you never have to worry about eating. (laughs) They would cook and they would feed you till kingdom come. I mean, oh my God, it was phenomenal. But the other, the flip side of that, and for me, it's an important side of it. You know, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. People think I'm angry or I'm mad. No, I'm never angry or mad. I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated. And um, part of that frustration comes from I have an obligation to represent my people, mm-hmm. all people. And a lot of times people just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you're constantly fighting just to be at the table or just to be heard. And sometimes people don't even realize how insensitive they can be because what you say says a lot about what you think and how you Mm -hmm. see someone else. And I see a lot of that. I mean, I've been in meetings where someone would say like those little Negro dancers, mumble, jumble, jumping on the, that is so disrespectful. Or when you say those people, those people are us. And so you're constantly defending that and trying to educate people. But when you educate people or they think you're trying to correct them, even though it's coming from a fraternal place of love, you're perceived as being negative, angry, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't learn, you're not going to go anywhere. And part of it is also that like many of my brother priests have never ministered or been in the black Mm -hmm. community. So they don't know what it is. They don't know the instant sensitivities. And most importantly, they see 
a lot of black people as strangers. And then you couple it with when you say black, what do you really mean by black? Do you mean African-American? Do you mean Cape Verdean? Do you mean Nigerian? Do you mean Haitian? Because we're all lumped in as one. And that's a difficult, and there are cultural differences there as well. So there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then coupled with, like, you see all this stuff going on in the media, the way police brutality and stuff, that stuff's been going on forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I'm myself had to have the talk. If you get pulled over, do this. I, I have family members who have just been harassed, and it puts you at a different stage of the game and what you'll tolerate. And, you know, let's be honest, some of the great black leaders are gone. Dr. King, no violence, that's gone. These, this young generation wants immediate answers. So you're trying to educate and keep calm at the same time, but make sure people are heard. So it's a very hard balancing act. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and, and my hope, you know, I, I, I was very, you know, you had said something that has resonated with me, um, even kind of even leading into this conversation. Well, I was actually very excited to, to talk to you from a vocation standpoint, right, about it's hard to promote vocations because they don't, you don't see someone who looks like you, right? And I, I remember having a conversation with the principal at one of our inner city schools and a young student uh, lower than fourth grade said exactly that, right? I can't be a priest. I'm not white because that's what they see. And, and in this, you know, in reality, okay, yeah, certainly in, in this area of, of the Northeast, is that the majority? Yes, but that's not exclusive, right? Um, and the reality is, is that we need, we don't just want, we don't just desire, we need a priesthood in the diocese and in the church that reflects every aspect of the diocese and of the church, right? That that comes from every community, that comes from every perspective and understanding, because the real communion is a unity of different people and different truth and or different, not different truth, but different perspectives all coming together in communion with Christ, in communion with the truth that he has revealed. Um, and so we have to be better at that. We have to give voice and listen um, and, and do a much better job of opening ourselves up to reflecting the realities of our church and the, the realities of our people. There's also a frightening aspect, and it's almost like the elephant in mm-hmm. the room. And I'll address it because I live Please. with it. Um, as a priest, what we do is very holy. Mm-hmm. Who we are is like everybody else. Yeah. We come into it with our own backgrounds, our own upbringings, and our own ideologies and thoughts. So the hardest thing for me to um, reconcile was that not all priests think the same. Not all priests are as holy as you picture them to be, although there's a holiness. But there are some racist priests. And that shocked me because you think he's a priest. He wouldn't be that. But can I blame that person? That's what they grew up with. That's what they know. And until we interact with them and change that, it's going to be difficult. So sometimes, you know, even when I'm in a situation and someone treats me a little less than what they should in it, it, it can be frustrating, but you still have to do the right thing to educate them 
And so it's almost as if some people judge that I don't belong at the table because of the color of my skin before I get there. They're going to scrutinize everything I do even more. Like, what's his education? Where did he go to school? What's he preach like, et cetera, et cetera. There's more attention on me than I think on most, but you do it anyway. I remember my mother, she told me a very good lesson in life, and I'll never forget it. She goes, sometimes you have to work twice as hard to get half as much, but you still do it because you don't know who you're paving the way for. And my mother was a great example of that. She started out at the telephone company in 1967 as a switchboard operator. You know yep. the old ones? Yep. She retired as an executive vice president with no college education, but it was hard work. Yeah. And she broke barriers that others wouldn't allow her. And that's what I was raised with. Mm -hmm. the, you never take no. No one should limit you. I grew up in the era where my guidance counselors all told me I should go to the military, mm -hmm. that I wasn't college material. Although I was number seven in my class. You, you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So there are obstacles yeah. that are in front of you nonetheless. And in the priesthood, I don't care what color you are, there are going to be obstacles. I mean, not everyone is homogenous. Mm -hmm. So people have different backgrounds and feel different things. But the thing that I always come off with, and I'll always remember, I'm not a priest to please those other priests. I'm a priest of Jesus Christ and to please the people that he puts before mm -hmm. me and to make sure that I do my best. And sometimes I can be contentious or cantankerous because I'm going to fight for what's yeah. right. My biggest thing is I would have been great in the 60s. I just dislike injustice yeah. anywhere and I will always speak up on it. So usually if you see me rattle, there's something unjust going mm -hmm. on and I'm going to speak on it because I don't like that uh, sin of omission. Yeah. When I get to my judge, he's not going to say, I missed an opportunity to speak up. And I think that's what we all need to do. But we also need to be able to hear it. Yeah. A lot of people are too sense. This woke thing blows me away. What are you awake to if you don't know the past? You're awake to your needs, but are you awake to everybody else's yeah. needs? It just blows me away where we're at with yeah. this. Yeah. And I and it, and it, the reality of that as priests, we are not exempt from conversion. We're not exempt right. from challenging our own hearts, our own perspectives, our own, right, adopting that same growth mindset, that same, you know, ability to grow and to allow the, the mercy, the love of God to reach us, not only through him, but through our brothers and sisters, through challenging moments, through times when our own perspectives on the world, our own worldview is, um, you know, challenged or questioned or uprooted. We're not exempt from that. Right. Because ultimately we're called to the same path to holiness as everybody else, which requires a constant conversion of heart. Um, and so the, the ability to open ourselves up to that, to be to be vulnerable. Right. I think is is a, is a great way to say it, of, of to have the bravery and the courage to say that there's something either that I don't know. There's something that I don't have. That I don't share that experience. So I'm going to I'm going to listen to someone who has it. Or to say, you know what, maybe my own perspective is coming from a very particular place that needs to be opened up and needs to be challenged and needs to grow. Um, that's not anathema to priesthood. That's at the heart of priesthood, right? That, that, that constant conversion of heart and, and the ability to grow. Because if we can't expect that of ourselves, how can we expect that of our people? And I think we also need to recognize that we live in a time and a place where we, the society is trying to divide us and separate us into little cliques of like-minded people. And Jesus is calling us into a larger group. And I always say that we are at our best when we operate under the stance that we're all human beings, we're all God's children, and thus we must love each other. Don't look any further than that, because even if you're diametrically opposite of me, 
by the love of Christ as being his child, I still have to find something to love about you. I can't just write you off and we will never grow if we continue to separate and categorize everything. We will just put up more and more walls and Christ wants us to tear down those walls and walls and get to the root of being humans, living in community, loving God and loving neighbor and everyone's our neighbor. By our baptism, we're all siblings. I don't care what color you are. We're all Christ's children. So love your siblings. Yeah. yeah. And, and having grown up with three siblings, you, that means you fight sometimes <laughs> and that means you disagree and that's okay. But at the end of the day, you're family, right? But you also have to know what you're fighting yeah. about. All too often, there are many people that don't even know what they're fighting. They're just fighting. <laughs> fighting to be right. And I always say, even when I talk to our young couples, you're in an argument, you're going to damage your marriage. Because when you start to argument, the way our society is, someone has to win and someone has to lose. And in the process of someone winning and losing, you're willing to hurt the one that you love. And that makes no sense. Yeah. What we must learn to do is stop fighting to win or lose, but start communicating to understand so that we don't have to fight. And I think that's the biggest problem. And you see it in politics now, the nastiness and what they hurl at each other just to win is nonsense. And we don't have a compromise in understanding. I don't think that my perspective is wrong, but I don't also think it's the only one out there. And until someone shows me another way, I'll never be moved. And that's the beautiful beauty of our church. And I think that's what drew me also. We have answers. People may not like them, but the answers are there. And the beautiful thing about it is they've been trying to disprove them for millennia and they haven't succeeded yet. So at some point, it's like, when are you going to stop banging your head up against the wall and just understand there's a reason for it? You may not like it and it may not fit in with you. And that's one of the reasons our church gets such a bad name because we've drawn the line in the sand. This is the truth. You can't change the truth. As my mother always said, the truth will never hurt you. And you need to figure out why you can't accept it because it's usually within you. It's not the truth because the truth is the truth, whether you sure. like it or not. Yeah. And that's where we're at in this Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing those thoughts with us. I think that there's a lot of really good uh, and important lessons uh, in there for all of us to consider, for all of us to pray over and, and to, to invite that growth and that, that conversion of heart. Um, so we, we thank you so much, Father Reggie, for joining us. Um, on this podcast for, for sharing a little bit of your story. We hope you'll come back at some point. I would love to have you back, um, you know, to, to continue this conversation. I think it's an important one. And I think it's one that we need to have, um, g- give voice to much more frequently than we sure. do. Um, but I, w- I want to end just with, with something uh, we've, we've started to do, which is just a couple of, of just kind of quick fire questions. The first thing sure. uh, that comes to your mind. Uh, the first thing is, is who is your favorite saint other than Mary? Because that's a given. <laughs> well, again, I'll show my bias, but St. Gregory. Yeah. Okay. The reason I like St. Gregory is because, like him, first of all, it's my birthday feast, oh, but also he was ordered and very structured. Yep. If you know anything about me, people have called me anal, and I'm okay with that. I like structure, and I like order. I can work outside of it, but when I have structure and order, I'm great. But you think of Gregorian chant and all the other beautiful things that he did so unselfishly. So that's him. What's your favorite scripture passage or story from sacred scripture? Uh, It's on the wall up there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own ways. That's where I live. And when I trust on the Lord, I'm all right. Absolutely. That's what for me. That's prayer. When I go to God, 
with my concerns or worries, I come out at peace. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things that people don't understand about us, why prayer is so important. Mm -hmm. When we stay close to God, we get answers and direction like no other place. So it's yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. And then finally, if you had to recommend to someone, say, who is discerning or trying to discern God's will in their lives, if you could recommend one prayer or devotion or spiritual practice to them to help discern God's will, what would you recommend to them? Serenity prayer. Every single time. And what I what I think we need to remember is discerning doesn't mean it's been decided. Right. It means I'm opening myself up to explore yeah. and allowing God to move you because without that, none of us would be mm -hmm. here. And I think we also need to understand and get back to the basic values of community. Yeah. It's no, not about the individual. It's about the greater good of all. And when you put that together and God's will together, how could you not want to serve God? Amen. The, and I, I tell people, and they think it's, some people might think this is arrogant, but I don't say this in an arrogant way. I say it in a truthful way. Even on my worst day, as a priest of Jesus Christ, I'm doing a lot better than most because Christ is always close to me. Yeah. So even what I think is a bad day, I'm doing better than most because Christ is by me, guiding me, loving me, showing me a way out. And as long as I have that, I'm okay. Amen. I think that that is a beautiful, beautiful thought. So thank you so much uh, to Father Reggie Norman uh, for joining us for this wonderful conversation. Um, I, I greatly have enjoyed it. So again, thank you all for joining us for another episode of A Priest Forever. You can find more information if you're looking for more, more information uh, about the priesthood, and, and especially at bridgeportpriest.org. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Bridgeport Priest. And of course, you can find the podcast on YouTube and anywhere else you get your podcast. So thank you again, Father Reggie, for joining us. And thank you for absolutely, having me. And may God bless you all. Take care. Thank you.